Good to see everyone. How are you all? Good. This group's good. <laughs> okay, let me get together here. I am so happy we can be together, continue to study Nehemiah and what that means in our life. And isn't it awesome how it um, so goes along with our life? God never changes. His truths never change. His word never changes. Um, He is a constant and a faithful God. I want to talk about leadership today. And I had a little bit of a fear that we might feel the freedom to check out because we might think I'm not heading the PTA right now or I'm not leading some project or I'm not the head of some committee. Um, So this lesson's not really going to apply to me. And my answer to that would be if you are a Christian, you are a leader. There are two kinds of leadership. One involves just what I mentioned, heading up a particular task. Sometimes we're called to lead people to do that. But all the time, we as Christians are called to live in a way that leads people toward God. A Christian is not a follower except in the sense that we follow God. So that makes us leaders in this world. We are not followers of wayward man. And so that means in order to be obedient to our God, we do things differently than those who don't know God. We think differently. We act differently. We have different goals and we have different purposes than those who are conformed to a world that chooses to leave God out of it. So when we walk as leaders... Because we're following God and we're doing the things we're supposed to. We're pointing others toward God. There was a town in Mississippi that fell into a lot of trouble because their um, little city council had some corrupt members on it. And many of them were corrupt. And there was a, a big meeting down at the town hall. And the reporter was there. And the news camera was there. And they, you know, one of the reporters finally said, Who is to blame here? Who is to blame here? And the crowd was, you know, all pointing fingers at each other and finally stopped because this man in the back of the room lifted his hand. He happened to be a Christian member of the community. And he lifted his hand and he said, well, blame me because maybe if I'd been living the way God's called me to live as his leader in this world, maybe I could have influenced some of these individuals in a different direction. So if you want to blame someone, blame me, the Christian. That's the power that we have in this world as leaders who follow God. We reflect God in a God-confused world. And we're encouraging others toward a relationship with their creator. And guess what? Where does this start? With everybody that's closest to us, with our families, our husband, our children, our friends, our workers. So sometimes, yes, you're called to lead a Girl Scout troop all the time. Called to lead in a way to get people to understand better who God is. At this time in his life, Nehemiah was called to both kinds of leadership. And when we look at his leadership skills, I hope you were amazed. Here's the great thing about it. We won't need to just read what he did and think he did such a good job. 
we get to say, I'm going to take these leadership skills and apply them in my life, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my workplace, in my home, in my community. And it is amazing what God can do with these kind of wise skills that we learn from Nehemiah. Uh, Last week we left him on his knees. He was seeking God's face about Judah. What a perfect place to be when you're a leader, on your face before God, because good leadership begins with letting God lead. We sing these words a lot about following Jesus. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus. Blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us. Thine we are. So early, let us seek thy favor. Early, let us do thy will. Blessed Lord and only Savior, with love our bosoms fill. Blessed Jesus. Bless us, Jesus. Thou has loved us. Love us still. And we sing these words, but sometimes reality in our heart is that we really don't want to be led. We've really got plans made. But we're going to sing this song, but we're not really sure we want him to lead us because we don't know if it's going to fit with what we want to do and if it's where we want to go and if it's with who we want to be with. And it's frightening. And so we sing, but we don't always do it. And Nehemiah poured himself out before the God of Israel and said, what is your plan? How can I line up my plans with your plans so that you will use me in joining in Judah's renewal and then Nehemiah joined God? And I thought, how many times have I made the mistake of coming up with a plan of my own, going to God and say, hey, line up your will with my will. I want you to join me. Here's what I'm going to do. Leadership is about joining God in a work that he is already doing. Remember... God had prophesied a long time before about Judah and that his desire was for it to be rebuilt and those exiles to return and a remnant to once again bring glory to God. And so we have to realize it's not about asking God to partner with us in our plans, but asking God, how can I be your partner in the mighty, incredible divine plans that you already have? And now sometimes we might think, okay, but what if I get this idea? And my thought is, I want to do this for God. I'm not saying that that never happens. I'm not saying that God might not put something new on your heart. But I think we should still always look to see, is his hand already upon this? Is his hand already a part of this? Or is this just simply my hand? And if it's just simply my hand, I am not going to be able to hold this plan up. In my own strength. I loved reading about uh, Ruth Graham, no, Ann Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter. And she talked about going to football games with her uh, husband. Her husband is six foot seven. And so she said she'd always get intimidated in the parking lot because everybody's pushing and shoving and they go to his, uh, I forget what university it was, somewhere in the south. 
And, you know, so she says, I just look for my husband when we get out of the car. He knows how to get to our seats. I take his hand and I let him lead me to our seats every time because he's looking above. He knows where to go. He's my leader. And she said this great line, this is how I live my Christian life. I just try to faithfully follow God's steps day after day after day. He's her leader. She's not trying to lead him. I read, too, about this famous runner from Finland. His name was Lars Viren, and he'd won years ago some major Olympic things. And so his coach signs him up to run the marathon in the Olympics, though he had never even trained for it because his coach wanted the publicity. And so Lost Viren was scared and didn't know what to do. And so his coach said to him, okay, see this American right here? He won this four years ago. He won the marathon. He's got the gold medal. You run behind him the entire way. You run in his shadow. When he surges, you surge. When he holds back, you hold back. And so Lost did that. And he ended up placing fifth in a race he had never run before in the Olympics. And I thought, what a great picture for us. As God followers, we are running a race when God is surging. Surge with him. When he's holding back, hold back with him. Be patient. Follow his need, his lead. We want to run, and that's a good thing to have that energy for him and run. But make sure we're running in his shadow. Not leaving a shadow for him. Run in God's shadow. Look what Psalm 23 says on your verse sheet. Oh, I left out the first two verses. Let me read those real quick. These are how we're supposed to be leaders today in this world. Ephesians 2. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but as leaders be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will, and that's what the world is going to see. Because of our leadership. God's will. Okay. God to be our leader. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What a good reminder. God is our shepherd. God is our leader. So Nehemiah's been praying a long time. He finds all of a sudden on a particular day, he gets up. He's going about work the same as usual. He's going into the presence of the king. But he realizes God has taken his hand and is pulling him into the king's banquet hall to have a critical meeting with King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was ready. The next truth about an effective leader is this. An effective leader prepares to live out their calling. Look at chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I, Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. 
I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple. And for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. This is the best story. This is the banquet hall of the king. Nehemiah is carrying out his official's duties. He's tasted the king's wine. He's bringing it to the king. Remember, he's been mourning over Judah for four months now. But until today, he's been able to hide that in his face, and his countenance. This day is different. This was God's plan. He carries within him a sadness that the king can see. It's over God's people and God's land. But still, what happens to him when the king notices? He's very afraid. Why would you be afraid? Because if you showed a sadness on your face in the presence of a king, what you basically were saying is, I don't like you. Or you're not a good king. Or I'm dissatisfied with you. And the king can immediately decide, off with your head. Or you're not my cupbearer anymore. Whatever he wanted to decide. One writer said this, A king's wrath is a messenger of death. The cupbearer knew that. I think if Nehemiah had been praying and preparing, he might have just run out of the room at that time or tried to make a joke. Or do something else. But instead he realizes, this is, this is it. This is the time that God's been preparing me for. And I'm going to be bold. And I'm going to tell the king, I want to partner with God and rebuild the broken walls of Judah. I think Nehemiah could be bold because he had prepared for this very moment. Nehemiah presented his matter to the king, we just read, with boldness, with foresight, with wisdom. And guess what I love? He first is wise because he makes the whole issue personal to Nehemiah and not political. That was a wise thing to do. He brings the king into his broken heart before he begins discussing the broken city of Judah. And if you'll notice here, he doesn't mention the word Judah. I mean, Jerusalem. 
Instead, he goes to the king without even reminding him that, King, you know, you gave a command a few years ago that stopped the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, and this is what I want to do. Instead, he just reminds him, Shouldn't I be sad because the city where my fathers are buried is in ruins? And so he's leaving out all the politics surrounding Nehemiah's earlier command and really bringing his heart into it. So the king's next question is, well, so what is it you want? That's the question of questions. Everything rode on this. This is what Nehemiah has been waiting for. What is it you want? And instead of just blurting out something stupid, he closes his eyes, he prays another quick prayer to God. This is the moment. God, I need your wisdom. I need your strength. And then he says, I'm going to share the calling that God has given me. And he looks boldly at the king who said, no more rebuilding of Jerusalem. He looks in his eyes and says, I want to rebuild this city in Judah. Let me go to it. He still doesn't name the city. It might be a sore spot in the king's heart. He's wise about that. Now, I thought it was very interesting uh, that in the next line we read the queen is sitting next to the king. Now, I don't think that needed to be in there unless there was a reason for it. My thinking is she was an advocate at that moment for Nehemiah, that God had placed her there. I don't think they would have mentioned her otherwise. She wasn't just sitting there doing nothing. I think she also was used by God to turn the king's heart towards uh, allowing him to partner on this. Remember we read in Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hand of the king of kings. All of this has the handprint of God upon it. Now, I want to say this. The king knew the city he was talking about. It was just nice for him not to hear that word at this time. So he agrees to send Nehemiah. He asked Nehemiah, how long will this take? And what if Nehemiah had said, I don't know. Who knows? I never built a wall before. You have any thoughts? (laughs) How well would that have gone over? What kind of insecure feeling would that have put in the king's heart? How uncomfortable that would have made him. But I love that Nehemiah was prepared. He had a time in mind for his calling. In fact, Nehemiah had prepared an answer for every question that I think he thought the king might ask him. He knew exactly a time that he wanted to share. He knew exactly what he would need from the king to carry out his calling. And what did that do for King Artaxerxes' heart? gave him assurance, confidence, trust, and faith in what Nehemiah wanted to do. I thought it was so great. Nehemiah was so prepared. He even knew the name of the keeper of the king's forest. Did you even know there was a keeper of a king's forest? I thought it was God, but his name was Asaph. Because of his preparation, Nehemiah received everything as as well as the blessing of the king. But did he think to himself, I am so clever. I am so amazing, my prayers. No, look at verse 8. He said, it's because God's gracious hand was upon me. He immediately identifies this came about because of an act of God. He was quick to acknowledge God as the reason for his success. 
So as leaders today, we have to present our calling. This was Nehemiah's calling, our calling before others in a way that is also bold, respectful, thoughtful, and under the umbrella of God's will. Remember, what's our calling as leaders in this world? We are to be leading others toward God, and we have to be well prepared to do this. Look what 1 Peter tells us. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I remember the time when our son Tyler was probably... Six years old, we were um, in our den, in our house. He had a tennis ball in his hand. We had this big picture window. I used to let him bounce the tennis ball on the picture window and catch it. It was just like any normal day, and I don't know what I was doing in the room, and he's bouncing a ball, and he doesn't look at me, and he says, why should I believe the Bible when a bunch of men wrote it? He keeps bouncing the ball. Now, what if I said, I don't know. What do you think? Well, well, just believe it, and you better obey it, because that's what I think. I don't know why, but what if I had no thought prepared for that kind of a question? And, and, and I'm not patting myself on my back, because I, I answered many things that way in his life. <laughs> this time, I happened to have the gracious hand of God upon me, and the, some wonderful training from really this church. And I was able to talk through that fabulous question. So that when he was done bouncing the ball, he didn't have in his heart this insecurity about Christianity, about the Word of God. We have to be prepared for an answer for all those kind of things. Because what's our goal? Pointing others toward God. We have to be ready for that. Okay, we move from the banquet hall. We're going now to the ruined streets of Jerusalem. We see Nehemiah there. He's ridden a horse or a mule. Surrounding him is rubble, burned wood. His horse picking his way along the rocky roads. And we learn another wonderful trait of an effective leader. An effective leader practices the discipline of secrecy. Look at verse 11. So Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. At this point, that's all he's done. So we think, okay, he's journeyed for two months to get to Jerusalem. The first thing he does is nothing. At least that's what it looks like to us. But in reality, he's practicing the discipline of, of uh, secrecy. Now, this isn't deception. This is not sneakiness. This is wisdom. Listen to what A.W. Tozier says. Might not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corridors of the kingdom like children through a marketplace, chattering about everything, but pausing to learn the true value of nothing? It's so easy for us to do that. Wouldn't that have been easy for Nehemiah at this point to be so excited? He had never seen Jerusalem. 
never. He has this incredible calling. He's one of the guys, he knows the prophecies, and he's thinking, God's called me to be a partner with him in that. I can't believe it. I'm here, and now I'm going to just be secret. And I'm going to talk to God. And I'm going to let him be my advisor and my encourager. I'm going to share my fears with him. I'm going to ask him what my next step is. And this is important because the discipline of secrecy addresses our human ego. And listen to this quote. We have a craving for applause and adulation. The discipline of secrecy relinquishes our urgent need To boast, to control others' lives, it draws us to deeper levels of trust in God alone. It teaches us to enjoy the intimacy with God. That is for us alone. And what would have happened if Nehemiah jumped off his horse, rode in Jerusalem, and said, Here I am. You won't believe what I've gone through. You won't believe the story. Everybody gather. Okay, I started praying months ago. I had to go before the king. He could have chopped my head off. This is what happened. God is amazing. Anyway, so he's got a plan. Look, come around. Line up. Line up according to your families. I'm going to give you all jobs to do. You're going to get started. How how well would that have gone over? Not well at all. For the first three days, Nehemiah was praying, meeting with a few people, learning about the people, learning who he could trust. Nehemiah was satisfied and believed God is enough. Even at this incredible point where I am, I'm on the edge here, God is enough. I'm satisfied to be with God right now. Jan Weinbrenner has a chapter on this book, which is where I get the the idea of the secrecy. Her book is called Intimate Faith, and it's the different disciplines that we don't think about, that are really disciplines in our life. And she talks about the discipline of secrecy. She tells a story of a time she was at church, and the church had been kind of going through this kind of um, low time. She was sitting in the back of the church, and a soloist was singing about God, and it so moved her heart. And she said, before I knew it, I had stood on my feet with her eyes closed, thinking about the words and worshiping God. What Jan didn't know was that the whole church followed her lead, jumped up. It ended up making this really great worship service. Everybody was singing and worshiping God. Jan went home. A week later, one of her friends from church asked her to go to lunch, so she went to lunch with her. And she said, Jan, were you in church last Sunday? There was this woman at the back of the church. I didn't really see who it was. But, you know, it was probably one of the most moving things that's happened at our church in the longest time. She stood up during one of the soloist songs. And we all felt moved and felt close to God. And we all stood up, and she's going on and on. And Jan says, I was the woman at the back of the church. It was me. Immediately, here's what Jan writes, something broke inside of me. The breaking was irreparable. The prize irreplaceable. The secret was out. The praise of the woman was painful compared to the beauty of God's voice when I had contented myself on his approval alone. Doesn't that take discipline 
to do that. As his leaders today, we have to also remember true service rests contented in hiddenness. Jesus said, do your righteous acts in secret so you can escape that strongest temptation we ever face, elevating ourselves before God, stepping out before God, claiming glory for ourselves rather than for God alone. Look at Matthew 6. Jesus said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It's night. We look into the moonlight now. We see Nehemiah. He's with a few men examining the walls of Jerusalem. We see his next leadership skill, and that is an effective leader appraises before taking action. Look at verse 12. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. He is amazing. He's appraising. Nehemiah calculated, I'm going to go at night. I can appraise the situation there, not be disturbed. I can have a good understanding of it. I'm not going to be in a hurry. I'm going to take my time. And I'm not even going to talk about it. And when his horse got stopped in all the mess and the rubble, he just got off his horse and continued on foot to examine the wall of Jerusalem. And I think with every step he took, God was forming a plan in Nehemiah's heart how to go about rebuilding the ruined walls of this troubled city. And I think, you know, sometimes it takes a stranger to step into our lives to see things, the rubble and the disarray that we've gone, become complacent about. And so by Nehemiah having some men with him, they would also be maybe seeing some of these things in a new way, in a new perspective. Nehemiah is about to make an appeal for a really major commitment from the people of Judah. He knew he needed to understand them, and he needed to understand what he was calling them to do. And he needed to be able to get them to view the situation from God's perspective. So he wanted to experience them for himself, just how broken these people were, just how broken the land was. If he wanted to offer hope for rebuilding them, that's what he was going to have to do. That's what we do as leaders today. When we see those who are lost or strained and we want to come to them with the hope of the gospel, it means we come and we gain insight into their brokenness and their sin. And it means sometimes rummaging through the ruins of their lives. And we do this with great patience and with great compassion so we can offer them 
what God alone can offer, restoration, renewal. As his leaders today, we patiently understand the needs of others so we can direct them to the one who can meet their needs. It's not a time to say, I told you so. You've got a problem. What were you thinking? A leader doesn't do that. What if Nehemiah had ridden into Jerusalem, rode up and down the streets on his horse, crying out, God warned you about this. What were you thinking? Look what you have. Look at this mess you've made. How much work would have gotten done in their life? Why do we think we can do that to other people that are hurting and have sinned in their life and think they're going to want to listen to us to be restored? It's not going to happen. It takes examining the ruins with compassion and care. Nehemiah quietly assessed, took some men, saw their hearts, saw their trouble, and every second he was doing that, what was happening to the hearts of the people with him? They were being connected. They were growing in allegiance for him. They were becoming one with him. When we approach people to tell them everything they've done wrong and how they've messed up, we do this to them. Nehemiah instead observes their sin and his heart breaks for everything that they've had to face. Look at Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This kind of leadership leads others in the direction of God. This is the kind of leadership that softens the hearts of those that God has put in our path, our friends, our husband, our children, that we might be used by God to help heal them, bring them to God. A child doesn't want to be reminded of every mistake they made. And guess what? You will not become a part of their life of someone God uses to heal and bring them toward God. It takes understanding and it takes appraising a situation. Now, after Nehemiah does that, it's time for action. But instead of him becoming the knight in the shining armor, he could have brought that with him. Thought, now's the time. I put on my night suit. I jump on my horse. I ride out. Everybody goes crazy. Instead of coming to rescue them, he comes to be one of them, to be a part of them. An effective leader becomes part of a team. Look at verse 17. I said to them, these men, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Okay, what's so great about what? Look at that opening line I read. Circle the word we. You see how much trouble we are in. 
He identifies with them. Look at these walls and these burn gates. Let's together rebuild. I'm part of your team. And if Nehemiah is part of the team, here's something that's very important that uh, he wants them to know. God is the team captain, not me. God is the team captain. I want you to know this isn't a dream I have. This is God's desire. He wants to rebuild the city. I'm not the knight in shining armor. I am so happy to give God that honored position. We're doing this because of God. And then he tells them about God's hand, how he's met and prepared the way in Nehemiah's life to bring them all to this place for rebuilding. And then I love that he says this. Um, He mentions that it is a disgrace. And I really think he's more concerned in verse 17. He says, we are in such disgrace He doesn't think it's God's will that they live in this kind of disgrace. He's more concerned about that than he is about the insecurity of their position, that they are unprotected. Nehemiah knows Jerusalem was to be known as the city of the great king. It was to be known as the joy of all the earth. And so Nehemiah cares more about God's reputation than the safety of the people. And because he's presented himself as part of their team, their answer can be, yes, let's start. Let us start. Nehemiah being one of the us. So he becomes one with them in their trouble. One with them in their solution under God's direction. And the good work began. And I think, again, if we want God to use us in other people's lives, the loss, the strain, the hurting, we take on this same posture of acknowledging the fact that we are sinners as well. That we have turned our backs often on God ourselves. Look at Colossians 4. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. If we want a good work to begin in others' lives, we don't consider ourselves as better than them. We make them realize we're on your team. We're in the same boat. We are sinners just like you. We become authentic with our own brokenness. Then we get out of the way and we point them to God and we say, it's not God's will for you to live in this kind of disgrace. In fact, as God's creation, you're supposed to be a joy to the whole earth. That's his plan for you. And we let them know This is what he's done for us. He's taken away our disgrace. As leaders today, we identify them with them in their brokenness so we can testify how God's taken away our disgrace because his gracious hand has touched our life as well. Look at Romans 3. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Part of a team, we're all lost apart from God. Okay, when you're part of a team, guess what there is? A competing team. There always is. In this case, it's going to be Team Sanballat, Team Tobiah, Team Geshem. Look at verse 10 back in chapter 2. 
When those guys first heard that Nehemiah was on his way, it says in verse 10, when they heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And now that the work has begun, look at verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Okay, we haven't heard of Geshem before. He is... Uh, an Arab, an Arab ruler. He would take control of Moab and Edom. And I found out that they actually found his name written on a silver goblet just 40 years after this event took place as an Arab ruler. And uh, so you've got him, enemy to Judah from the east and the south. Then you've got Tobiah and Sambalot, enemies in Samaria and Ammon. And so basically Judah surrounded by everyone who hated her. They really wanted to take control of Judah for themselves and control them themselves. And as soon as they heard the good work had begun, they made plans to stop it by ridicule and accusations of rebelling. But if we could get the best translation ever for our Bibles... Chapter 2 is all about good versus evil. When it says the gracious hand of God, that translates to good. And everything that's around Tobiah and Sambalat traces to the word evil. Team God, the good hand of God. In verse 10, team Satan, evil is this trio of enemies. And also in verse 19. In fact, look at verse 10 again where it says... They were very much disturbed by the news of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. This is translated, it was evil to them. Good versus evil. The goodness of God was evil to them. And I think, man, some things never change. As part of God's team today, we reflect his goodness and our evil enemies of Satan hate it. What in the world are we supposed to do? What did Nehemiah do? Look at verse 20. It's so great. He answers them and says, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. Here's what we learn here. Nehemiah is not intimidated because he knows who the captain of their team is. God himself. So his point in what he says here is this. Whoever maintains the cause of God will prosper. So do what you want. We're on God's team. He's our captain. We're not intimidated by you. And guess what, you evil trio? You had no part in God's cause in the past or in the present. But we are on God's team. So this is how we respond when we face opposing teams when we're doing God's work. Uh, we're going to find those people in our lives. It often affirms that we are actually in the will of God. But as his leaders today, we are also not intimidated because God is our captain. If we maintain his cause, we will prosper. Look what Romans 8 says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Take out your, uh, or just turn to the back of your verse sheet. I wanted to show you just to close. If you look down in the center on this bottom part, you'll see the walls where Nehemiah, during Nehemiah's time, that they were repairing. If you look to the bottom by the city of David, you'll see where he rode his horse on this side. You'll see on the right side of the peninsula where he got off his horse and walked some more to continue to look around. And so these are the walls in this littler area here they're going to rebuild. When you see this dark wall on the outside, that's the size of Jerusalem today. But you might want to study this a little more later and look at it. But I want you to look at that right now. Kind of trace the ride and the walk of a faithful leader named Nehemiah in that bottom part of the peninsula. Now I want you to look up along that entire wall where you see the old gate and the fish gate. And now I want you to listen to the sounds of hammers and shouts and laughter and anvils and rocks being moved. I want you to hear the sound of voices and people. And then I want you to look real close at that wall and I want you to envision a priest and next to him a goldsmith, next to him a perfume maker, next to him rulers, sons, a family, daughters, Levites, countrymen, homeowners, temple guards, servants, merchants surrounding that entire wall from far and near working side by side in perfect unity with a shared vision under God with an excitement and an enthusiasm and as we see that happening we can watch a broken down people and a broken down city become beautiful again because what Nia accomplished, Nehemiah, in the gracious hand of his God, that's what we can accomplish as his leaders today. Taking broken people and making them beautiful again. Let's pray. Father, you are um, so good. We give you praise this morning for this mighty work you did and that this is the church. This is how we function together and what glory comes to you when we do that. Remind us of this, Father, that we would be faithful to your call, the call you've given all of us, to join together in the mighty work of salvation for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.